Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And Kimley, what we do, as you know, each episode we focus on a book, a specific book about music. It could be music history, it could be a biography, it could be a memoir, even a fictional character who may be a musician or composer or somebody dealing with music. So each episode of Book Music, we do we just focus on one book mostly. And today, Kimley, we have a very interesting book, don't we? Yes, yes, indeed. And the book we're going to discuss with the author, Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, Professor Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, is called You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, the biography of Nico. Jennifer, welcome to Book Music. That was so serious. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm perfectly said, perfectly pronounced, and very ominous there, Tosh. Well, I, get, I love the title because it's so, it's like you are beautiful and you are alone. Nico. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great title. It really is. It's so perfect. I yeah. mean, it really captures a big part of what she was about. I have to say, you know, reading reading your book, I love the book, first of all. Thank I think you. it's a great book, great biography, and a great subject matter. But what I did not suspect is I found it not a depressing read, but I, I'm very, I find Nico a very um, emotional, to me, it really struck an emotional something within me reading your book about Nico and it's your book of course but it's also Nico herself and when's, when's the first time you heard of Nico when did Nico became your in your presence well I it's kind of one of those things like the Velvet Underground is probably mm. similar because you're such a music nerd as well yes the Velvet Underground's like when did you first hear the Rolling Stones? Like, yes. I mean, I do, I do remember the first time I heard the Doors. Or when I have a very clear memory, but with with the Velvet Underground, it seems like they were kind of always there. Mm -hmm. With Nico, uh, you know, I've been asked this before. For me, it was really the Royal Tenenbaums when I got into Nico, uh -huh. the, the movie, because there's a great uh -huh. scene in the Royal Tenenbaums where uh, Wes Anderson uses a Nico song. Uh -huh. it, it's uh when the two adopted siblings Margot and Richie Tenenbaum mm -hmm. they've not seen each other in a long time and she comes to see him and it's just it, it, it's these days by Nico and it's just like oh it just captures like <laughs> that longing and just the oh just the everything like the voice the music the everything is just oh so Nico and that was my first real just run in with run in with Nico as a solo artist. And uh, I didn't really I got Chelsea Girl and I liked it, but I didn't really think mm -hmm. that much about Nico. And then I was I had done my first book, Why Vinyl Matters, on an independent press and I wanted to do something bigger. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I really want to do something on like a female musician. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out who it could be and you know, like I, it seems like all the people I like had either done a biography, done an autobiography, or were mm -hmm. so random that nobody but me would buy it. Like I was really pushing to do a Laura Branigan um, biography, <laughs> which I think I'd be interested in. Nobody else. Uh, do you guys know Gloria? Gloria, yeah. Which apparently <laughs> I've, I've not lived in America in a long time. Apparently Donald Trump has taken that song as his yes. own, but yeah, I didn't know that. Oh no. Yes. Yeah, I, 
I'm all, but there's still other tunes, Self Control. You know, she was on Sesame Street. There's other, uh-huh. there's other great tunes as well. Anyway, we're talking about Nico, not Laura Brianna. So, yeah, so like I stumbled upon Nico as being rated as this really important woman in music, and there was just so little written about her. Yes. I just thought, you know what? She has to be on like the kind of county fair scene. You know what I mean? Like that, uh-huh. like that kind of heritage rock circuit that people get on. Yes. Uh, and so then I started just doing more research and, and like the story just got crazier and crazier. Her life, the different kind of epochs of history that she spanned. And mm-hmm. I was just like, I have to write a book about this person. So that's really how it came about. There's so much mythology behind her story. And um, I really love that you really, really researched this book. I mean, you, you know, things like just even finding out when she was actually born, things like that weren't even really known for certain. Um, what was the process and, you know, why was it so important to you to kind of nail down as many facts about her as possible? Well, I'm not one that's like, I hate to be like, oh, I'm this huge hardcore feminist. Being a feminist and being a woman is just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found really problematic is when I started looking at people that had written about Nico and of course, I think it's just the way life is when the music journalists that were writing about her when she was an active artist were mm. almost entirely men. But that is who were mostly music journalists at the time. And mm. the biography, the main other biography that had been written about her was actually called The Life and Lies of an Icon. And as someone that has worked for a long time in the mu- in and around the music industry as I have, I found that both those things, the fact that you know, like I can never know what it's like to be a man. A man can never know what it's like to be a woman. Mm. And I found it problematic that a woman had not really taken the time to look at Nico. And so that was one thing I wanted to do. And another thing is lies. It's like who in the music industry, who in Hollywood in entertainment does not lie. There's always a lie of some kind, whether it is you're dyeing your hair away from its natural color, Uh you're exaggerating something um you're you don't remember the truth slightly and if you think about here's a woman that grew up and was born into nazi germany of course she's gonna lie right so so to put that as a title and accuse someone of being a liar in a negative way really kind of rubbed me the wrong way so it kind of made it my mission i'm like let's really dismantle these myths let's really take a look at these things because one other thing i found is and you guys i I don't know how old you are but um one thing you know i'm i'm getting a little bit long in the tooth now and you know like i've worked with bands like i you know like i knew nirvana early 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 in my music career uh Mm. and so you see bands and people you worked with become legendary and iconic and you see the story and the mythology grow around them that is completely inaccurate to what actually happened yes. and to the people they were. And I'm like, I know that has to have happened with Nico and yes. I want, yeah. And I really want to kind of take her back, make her a human, yeah. you know, and not, not a perfect person, but a relatable, a relatable woman that's flawed and genius and fucked up and all those things. So that was really important to me. And that was, why I did the book the way I did in terms of how I did it. It was, it took, you know, two years of researching. And when I mean researching, I mean, it was like a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb trail. Like mm. one email, one email would lead to another email would lead. Like if it would be like a, the most crazy zigging here, zagging there is zagging's a word, mm-hmm. but here, there, everywhere. And then you would just end up somewhere. You wouldn't even think in terms of who you'd be talking to or 
where you would go in an archive. Yeah. And I don't, and I'm yeah. a typical American, not to tar you two with the same brush that I am, but, um, you know, I speak American, um, <laughs> I don't, over here in Europe. I'm saluting you right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like over here in Europe, almost everybody speaks like at least when I started graduate school over here, every, mm-hmm. like everybody's like, yeah, like I speak French and German and blah, blah, blah. They're like, what is your other languages? Yeah. I'm like, I speak dude. You know what I mean? I'm from California, yeah. bruv. Um, so like you know i would be going to like these german archives with my like um google translate and being like so dude where is the nazi records from this year you know and then it'd be like the google translate trying to make it happen um one thing that i really appreciated about the book is that you know there are certain stories in her life that we're never really going to know for sure and what you chose to do is kind of tell it sort of rashomon style where you gave various perspectives you let you know a bunch of different people kind of tell their version of the story and and the reader can kind of take it for what it is but you don't ever sort of push any narrative that you don't know for sure okay i like that you picked up on that we can ask is there a reason i did it that way yeah well i mean at what point did you realize you were going to have to do that that you weren't going to be able to definitively tell a precise narrative behind certain events was that well, always the plan? Did you kind of always know you're going to have to have multiple narratives? No, that was never. With all these things, I think it evolves as you're doing it. Because mm-hmm. even if the three of us were out at dinner and we saw something happen, mm-hmm. there we'd have just because if the way we're sitting, we'll the way we're sitting around a table, we're all going to see it somewhat differently just from our perspective right. of looking at it. And I think that that's how I kind of tried to to. I took the book like. People are going to, re- especially like my memory is horrendously bad. Um, and one thing I really realize about my own memory, when I'm thinking of things from the past, my memory starts to be influenced. The more times I tell a story, the more that becomes the story, even if it's not 100% true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And then that story also becomes influenced by other people adding on to it or things I read about. So, like, um, like for i have so many stories like this but like for example i um 50 cent the rapper mm-hmm. i went on tour with him and like i don't remember hardly anything from that tour except that i had to wear a bulletproof vest because oh. it was dangerous mm-hmm. i didn't think anything of it because i'm like i'm 26 we you know what i mean <laughs> now i'd be like fuck no you know what i mean <laughs> and kimberly i'd have to leave the house which you know i'm like oh hells no <laughs> But um, but but he and I had a lot of talks during that time about like race, and it was interesting because uh, we would go places, and he'd play these massive shows, and then we'd be walking down the street, and people would be like throwing n bombs and other kind of like racist, mm. derogatory things. So we had all these um, crazy talks and discussions. I was the only woman on the road and the only white person, which that was the first time in my life I'd been. You know, the only white person. I realized this is what all my black friends have to deal with all the time, being the only one. Where this story is going, though, is that I don't remember anything else that happened on that except the 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 kind of the conclusion is at the end. I asked Fifty to sign this magazine that he was on the cover of, Mm -hmm. and I didn't. I thought he was going to sign it like, Jen, thank you for all the great talks, and you know, da da da, like great getting to know you. When I looked at the magazine after he signed it, it said. Dear Jen, you beautiful. Your big breasts and your green eye prove that God's a man. Love 50 Cent. 
<laughs> that's what that's what he signed it. So so that's become like the story of my time with Fifty Cent. Even though like I'm sure there's this really rich other things that happened during that time. So I'm, I'm so how this goes tracks back to Nico is that I because I have so many incidents like that in my own life working with artists. I'm assuming that the people that worked in new Nico have many of their own, your big breasts and your green eyes moments of their yeah, own with her. Yes. So, yeah. so they probably had these stories or experiences with her that they probably retold over and over or thought about. And so I had to kind of to piece together what, who she was and yeah. what may have actually happened. I had to get all the different perspectives to kind of try to make the full person. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. You know, Absolutely. When it, yeah. come to think of it, like when you think of the whole Andy Warhol, Velvet Underground world, all those people reinvented themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. Nico's, it's another person there mm -hmm. reinventing herself. Well, she did it earlier, but you know, like there, no, there's nobody there like with a straight ahead identity. You know, Warhol had to make himself Andy Warhol, Andy. Mm -hmm. Lou Reed from Long Island became <laughs> Lou Reed that we, that we know and <laughs> love, John Cale. You know, all these people had to reinvent themselves. And, and um, I think it's part of being a artist in the 20th century. You know, and you had to sort of, um, especially something like Nico came from really a horrific childhood. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, World War II, Germany. I mean, Berlin. I mean, uh, what's in Berlin? Well, whatever. It's, it's just the whole, you know, that whole world was one huge destruction. And, you know, she literally came from the ashes, right? And there's this, I can't remember if it, made it into the book or not i have not i've not flipped through the book recently but there was a picture that i wanted in the book and it was a picture of the berlin that nico returned to and it literally it's like a historic getty image and it's literally Ber berlin just in rubble with a dead soldier just stretched out basically yeah. like mm -hmm. a sacrificial creature across all this 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 city that's just decimated and i can't even imagine seeing that as seeing that now as a 40 something like as a yeah. child like the impression that would make on you like that would just be horrific and how you would ever get over that so that's really that's an astute commentary tosh because nico was already nico was a created persona before she even got anywhere near warhol so it's just like this mm -hmm. layer upon layer of persona that you're talking about and it's it's self-protection and it's uh it's beyond a defense mechanism. It's a survive. It's survival for her. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, and I would put Roman Polanski in the same because uh, mm. they're around the same age, and he too was a World War II child, and he his life was horrific in the war years as well. He was separated from his family. I think his I think his parents went to you know they they were uh, killed by the Nazis, and um, and he was just a child on the run by himself during the war years. You know, so I always think about like. When people talk about Roman Polanski now, it's sort of like, well, you know, he, he has a very interesting background, and I don't feel I have the right to judge this person, you know, due to what what him or Nico went through, you know, to to get where they're at. I mean, that's an incredible journey in itself. Well, do you know what's really interesting too? And I think it's really it's weird being here as an American, because there's so many things that we, as I'm going to sound so pretentious when I say this, so please forgive me. Um, we'll so we'll, we'll cut this out. Don't worry. Yeah. Cut the, no, no. yeah but there's so many well, we should that, let our listeners know you're in the UK. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I live in, yeah. I live in, yeah, I live in, I live in London. Sorry. I live in London. Yeah. I've been here for 12 years, but one of the things that is surprising is because we learn about things as Americans and here 
-hmm. it actually so many things actually happened here and yes i know it's it's learned versus actuality so one thing that was really surprising to me i mean i was fascinated as a kid by world war ii but it mm -hmm. seemed like something that happened so long ago and yes. you know and like the thing that fascinated me about it was I couldn't understand how you could want to kill someone for being a different religion. Like I really didn't understand that. And I was trying to wrap my head around that as a child. And here, what was interesting when I was researching Nico is people of German heritage were saying, this is like people in their like sixties were saying that even they, you know, um, who were born after the war, they were still did not talk about being German. It was shameful mm -hmm. to be German. Um, their parents, you know, they come here, just, it was not cool to be German at all. And I think about that in America. It's like, we don't think about, I think about like my friends that are, that have German ancestry in America. Like we don't think, maybe I'm just naive. Maybe I'm just very Santa Cruzian in that way, but <laughs> I never thought like, oh, you're a Nazi, your parents are German, right. you know, growing right. up in California here, it's a very real and not distant past at all. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's when you think about all the people that were born in that era that Nico was born in, and they were too young to have any agency, and they were subjected so strongly to the propaganda of the Nazis, um, you know, because the Nazis were obviously very aware of how susceptible children were to the indoctrination. And so they, they were born, like the first 10 years of Nico's life, she just had this horrible conflict of mm. hating from, you know, where she came from and suffering these extreme deprivations and horrors of war. And even after the war was over, she still, the deprivations and, you know, she may have been raped by a GI and just uh, as a child and the, the horrors just kept going. And it's like her foundation is just so traumatic. you it's amazing that you you get past that at all. That she maintained a, a music career and you know went on to do amazing things. You know, I mean, obviously she was very troubled, but she's so epic. Yeah. She's a, she's an epic life and an epic person. You know, we we should. Um, I think most of the listeners know Nico. You know, it was a Velvet Underground and her and her solo years from you know from the sixties and seventies and even the eighties. But probably very few music fans know of her life before they built underground. Um, she was a model, uh, a very successful model, correct? She was. And one thing I love about Nico is she never took modeling very seriously. Like uh -huh. she was, she saw it as a means to an end to get out of Germany initially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then she saw it as a way to make money. So you have some absolutely stunning uh, photo, you know, shoots of her high fashion. Mm -hmm. And then you have, in the same like month period, you'll have her doing a dishwashing soap advertisement. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, how much does it pay? Like, and I love that about her. Like there was no pretension at all. It was all about making the ched, you know, yes. uh -huh. um, and having fun. And I love that about her. Like there was no, like, I'm a model. I think models were, I mean, they were literally called dummies back then. Yeah. They weren't, yes. they weren't, it wasn't like today where, you know, the, what was the whole Linda Evangelista, I won't get out of bed for 10 bajillion dollars. There was like right. none, of that, none of that vibes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was a very famous and very successful world renowned beauty. She, but was she, was she a famous model? I mean, with the, the, the people on the street would know her name of Nico and the model at the time, or I, to me, she seems to be like sort of a really, um, a working model like you know there's a job she'll do the soap commercial she'll do the fashion thing i mean it, it, she doesn't strike me as being 
choosy in, in her assignments. No, I think in I mean famous is she modeled around Europe and America, but she wasn't like mm. and again like modeling was this is like 50s going into the 60s. Modeling was different than it is now. She was not choosy at all. And I think mm. you bring up a really good point. She was famous within the industry, but by the time the 60s come and like swinging London, when she gets to London, she's a little bit long in the tooth, yeah. you know, mid 20s at that point to be modeling. Um, and she's very tall. And even though she's quite, she's thin, she mm -hmm. still is thick compared to, you know, the Jean Shrimptons and the Twiggies yes. who are small and, you know, very like fawn like. And like, you know, I, I always say like, it reminded me of like little, like, hoo -hoo -hoo, like little yeah. tip tapping <laughs> does, you yes. know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. So she doesn't really fit into that vibe. So there's kind of this very defined period from about when she's 15 I mean, pretty long, actually, for a model. 15 to, like, early 20 is when she's modeling and, uh -huh. make, and making a lot of money from it. Not a lot of money. Not like right. not like Naomi Campbell, Cindy right. Crawford. But for someone that was raised in Nazi Germany and is not well-educated, a lot of money. But she was a huge reader. I mean, she read, like, classical literature. She spoke six or seven languages, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think people... One of the things that was written about her a lot and one of the myth, myths I really wanted to challenge was that she was stupid or you, you know she was quiet and didn't speak therefore she was dumb mm -hmm. she was very very aware and very conscious that she did not have the education of you know a lot of the contemporaries around her who had been to college right and so you know she was very much a student of the world because mm -hmm. she'd been forced to I mean seven languages she was forced to learn these languages because she was traveling for work for modeling and then mm -hmm. she was constantly she didn't read easy books she wasn't like me that you know mm -hmm. after a long day i'll escape into a, a nice you know uh, post-apocalyptic fiction to take my <laughs> mind off of COVID because it's so different. Um, but she, <laughs> she, she, she always was tackling these very challenging works. You know, like one of the first books someone told me she read was the, um, was it the Egyptian Bible mm -hmm. of the Dead? I think it's called. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, and I got that, and I think I got through like half a page. I'm like, wow. You know what I mean? And, you know, I'm a professor. I'm supposed to be able to read this. The fact that someone English is a second language was reading this, understanding it, and read the whole thing, I was like, hats off, girl, you know, because mm -hmm. it was definitely was a challenge, a challenging, uh, a challenging read. Her, her real name, what, what was her real name? Her real name was uh, Krista Pafkin. And she changed her name to Nico because she met or one of her boyfriends, lovers, is Nico. His name was Nico. She met a, uh, when she was about 15, 16, she met a photographer and he said, you know, Krista Pafkin is too, it's, it's, it's too colloquial. It's too meh, basically. Mm -hmm. All great models have one name. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and you can see the exact body motion I'm making. I bet in your mom. Yeah. Say that. Oh, one name. Yes. And he said, I'm going to call you Nico. Nico is the name, this is a male saying this to her, Nico is the name of the most beautiful man I ever met. And he lived in, I think, I think I want to say France, Paris, I can't remember. But that is the most beautiful man I ever met. His name is Nico. And so she took that name. And then she ends up meeting the namesake of, mm -hmm. you know, the guy she got named after she ends up meeting and dating uh, for quite a long time. And he was a, actually a club owner. So Yes, I know about him. Do you know about him? I do. He's a very interesting person. I, I have an interest in post-war uh, Paris culture life. And he, Nico was a, was a huge uh, uh, prominent figure 
in the nightclub music film world of that, like in Paris, like late 40s to the 50s. He was a very prominent uh, figure. And um, I didn't know that, somebody told me like, oh, his name, Nico took his name because they were, they were either a, a couple. I don't know what, I, I didn't know the full story. But, but I realized that, that he was sort of responsible for her being named Nico. Yeah, that's that is how she 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 was already called Nico when she met mm. Nico, but yeah, and then they ended up dating. And he actually was the one that took her to New York for the first time, and he was the one that suggested that she start singing initially, like in the in the first instance, because he was working in nightclubs and he was seeing right. people sing, and he's like, "You have such like a interesting speaking voice. You yeah. should really try, you know, using your vocalization in in an entertainment way." So, excellent, excellent advice. Yeah, so that was the first thing, and he he encouraged her to get singing lessons. This is strange, not strange, but by coincidence, you know, we in America we have the Criterion Channel from the Criterion um, DVD, you know, they reissue uh, classic films of all sorts. And right now on the uh, Criterion Channel, there's a retrospective of Nico's, not our Nico, but the other Nico's uh, films. He was also a filmmaker. It's the same Nico? Yeah. The one that it, was the club owner? He was yes. also a filmmaker? Yes. Okay. And he produced John Janae's short film. Oh, wow. And he produced, or helped produce, John Cassavetti's The Shadows. Oh, Shadows. that's right. Yeah. He's a very interesting man. Which which um, always reminds me, to, totally random, there's a band that, that Kathleen Hanna's in, and they have a, a song called Cassavetti's, and it's about John Cassavetti's. And that whenever I hear that name, and I remember when I was writing, and I was writing about the shadows, I was mm. like, "It's just, it's just like the song La Tigre." <laughs> <laughs> oh, La Tigre! <laughs> your your book is sort of a foundation of like in really incredible characters and people besides Nico. I mean, I mean, there's so many interesting both people Nikos. in your book. Yeah, it's both Nikos. <laughs> what did you think, um, Tasha? Some of the other people like that you'd not met or heard of before. Was there anyone and, else that struck you? Oh, in, in, in your book, on yeah. the Nico story? Um, I'll tell you one thing that was kind of oddly, I was shocked, or I found it really disturbing, is the um, Alan Delon side of the story, or the Alan Delon uh, character in your book. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm a big Alan Delon fan, but I really don't know anything about him, but I have heard rumors about him. I, I know that he's sort of a right-wing figure in, in is France. Is he? Yeah, mm. like very right-wing. And also he... I think he may have uh, some gangster connections. Oh, real! I did take some of that out of the book, actually. Okay, well, no, maybe, did you? <laughs> yeah, legal, legal read, maybe right take for some legal of that out. reasons. Yeah. yeah, and and he, there was a person who was employed by him, who died very violently. That had to be taken out on the legal read. Okay, right. so um, right. we could talk about that in book music, right? No. Well, we're not saying it's fact. We're <laughs> no, just saying know, yeah. this is this is all on Wikipedia. Yeah. It's not, yeah. uh, uh, and it, it, because there was actually what was hilarious is Joe Boyd, mm-hmm. who was a producer of Desert Shore by Nico. Yeah, um, some of that stuff happened with um, with Alan Delon with with his people, his associates, while they were recording Desert Shore. And Joe Boyd had a story of Nico being like not surprised, like him, like Joe Boyd saying to Nico, "Oh my God, have you read this stuff about what happened to Alan's like colleagues or whatever?" And mm-hmm. Nico being like, "She, he murdered them, or he had mm. them murdered, yeah. and she wasn't surprised yeah. at all." So, yeah, and I had yeah. that had to be taken out because it's conjecture. Sure, sure. 
Did you try to interview him at all? Did yeah, I got I got chat to him. Totally ghosted. Yeah, no. Yeah, I figured as much. Yeah, yeah, no interest at all. I read that Ari is actually suing for paternity, but Ari is the son of Nico. We should point that out. Yes, yes, yes. and and supposedly Alan Delon, but Alan Delon is denying paternity. I mean, I don't understand why. That's the thing that confuses me. I don't know why he's has he denied even having a relationship with Nico. I mean. He just it's is so not. Bizarre. Yeah, I mean, like, is, is this kind of one of those things like everybody assumes is true, um, including me? Well, the kid looks exactly like Alan Delon. <laughs> and you know, although it's funny because he looks a lot like his mom. I mean, if somebody said that Nico and Alan Delon were siblings, that wouldn't surprise me. The two of them actually do look kind of alike, but they do. Um, I hadn't thought of that. That is creepy and strange, but yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah, totally yeah. true. Um, yeah, I did talk to Ari. I talked to Ari on the phone and then I talked to, I've talked to Ari a couple of times over email since the book, like the final stages of the book. We did not talk about Alan DeLong though. We did not, that did not, there's some things right. that just, it, some things I didn't it's feel It's a sensitive topic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's just, it's weird. Cause it's just like, why would you not? It's, it's strange. Cause like at the end of the book, um, one of the things that like in, in the very end, not to give it away, but there's still a, such a, 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 a bad kind of stigma around Nico in a lot of ways. And yeah. that is, I think, so sad because, you know, like they wanted to name, I think, like a square after her in Germany. And they said no because of, of her being a drug user. And even right. like Shirley Manson, God bless her, from Garbage, you know, she's been a real supporter of me and this book. And she did a post where she like did a, a picture of her on Instagram holding up the book. And the comments some people put underneath it of like, oh, this person's a horrible drug addict. She's a Nazi. Why are you supporting this person? Like really mean and horrible things. Wow. And it's just, you know, people don't educate themselves, take the time to, to look what's going on. I think that could be part of the reason that that he still denies having a relationship with her. I don't know. It's very strange. You know, like, when we're jumping the gun here, we, we, I should probably explain Nico and apparently Alan DeLong have a child. Uh, and 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 Alan DeLong sort of like totally ignored Nico and his supposedly his son. And what becomes kind of strange to me is that Alan DeLong's parents adopted uh, the son. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So I said, okay, that's you know, and I think, well, that's a nice, you know, that's a nice thing for the grandparents to do you know that's it. but then when i look but that's when a nice, I thought, that's a nice thing that's nice but when, I thought about, but, but when i thought about it delon said to them uh look it's either me your son or or them you have a choice and they chose their grandson you know they chose the the little boy ari and apparently delon cut off communication with his parents is that is that, is that correct yeah, because he basically said, you know, it's either me or him. Right. And the uh, it was actually the stepdad, because the Dylan's mom married again. He said, well, Ari, Ari can't take care of himself. Right. And so they picked Ari. Which so was- this struck me very, I mean, again, I thought, okay, you know, good for the parents to do that. But on the other hand, this I feel like this cannot be the full story. There must be something of an issue between Alan DeLong and his mother. There must have been something besides, I mean, it can't, I mean, this might've been the last straw for him, but there must be a history of some type of uh, miscommunication or bad feelings 
between the son and the mother. I'm talking about Alan Delon and his in the, in the way, be, way before Ari came on the scene. Yes, yeah. I think there is. I mean, I, I it just doesn't it just doesn't strike me as you know Alan Delon is a badass actor. You know, he could be a badass character. Nothing will destroy him. Gangster relationships, murder doesn't matter. He's Alan <laughs> Delon. He's the most beautiful man on the planet. Nothing's going to change. He's lived. So, he, he's lived through coronavirus. So there you yes. go. He really is indestructible. <laughs> oh, did he get it? I didn't know that. <laughs> we still he just it in. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, I think that's a, that's interesting. That's kind of one of those things that we'll never know, isn't no. it? Because yeah. and that's and just to go back to Nico. I mean, like one of the things I had to do early on in the process. This is the thing that Kimley asked me um, in a roundabout way. Something I had to do early on in the process, and you really kind of weave it in here, Tosh, is that. I had to let go of mm. being able to capture the why, when, how, what yeah. of everything, because I mean, I got really obsessed at one point. I was just like, I want to know everything, every detail, every yeah. day, every minute. And it just like that whole thing you're saying, I'm like, God, I wish I like, even as you're saying it, I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I could have known that. I wish I could have figured that out. But like <laughs> some things you just, that's where going back to why is all the point of views because you just can't capture some of this. stuff. No, this, this is a totally conversational topic. I mean, we, what you did in the book is totally proper and you did the right thing. I mean, you know, that's, that's could be an off, that's like Alan Delon's life and that's his biography. <laughs> Which you know, unfortunately, Ooh, no, idea for another book. Can you imagine? Well, I'll, 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 unfortunately, there's not an Alan Delon biography in English, at least a good one. You know, hmm. I mean, you know, he worked with all the great French uh, world filmmakers. You know, I mean, he made great films. He's a, he's a definitely important. I mean, iconic presence in the world of cinema. He's Alan Delon. You know, and and it's but we don't we know very little of him in in the English speaking world. Well, he's not, yeah, he's not nearly as popular here in the States. Well, I still think he's a total, like, you know, everybody's in love with his beauty. I mean, he's a beautiful man, but, I mean, physically beautiful. Wow, Nico, beautiful woman, Andalon, beautiful man. (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong in this narrative? So Nico eventually got herself associated with Fellini. How did that, how that happened? Her friends were knew Fellini and she basically just walked on walked onto the set he saw her loved her and created that part for her and I mean you probably are a massive Fellini fan am I right to assume that I'm a massive fan of everything I, I, I yeah I'm picking up on that <laughs> um, I mean I'm I'm a I'm a little biased, but I think that she like steals the movie. I think she's just incredible uh-huh. in that movie. And yeah. that really helped springboard her because that, you know, that, that for the Americans, that was like the cool art house film. Right. And La Dolce Vita, we should mention that. La Dolce Vita. Oh yeah. Film. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so that really, you know, Ooh, that's the girl from La Dolce Vita. Like when she, when she first comes to New York, Danny Fields, you know, he, she goes to a party at Danny Fields house. They see her and they're like, Oh my God. You know, there she is in real life, right. this gorgeous creature from this from this foreign film. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's a it's a massive deal. So that was, I think, kind of her big step towards being in those artsy circles. Yes. Right. But it was interesting. I, I one thing that I didn't know that I found really intriguing was that her life was full of all these missed opportunities. Like I didn't know she was supposed to be the female lead in Purple Noon with Alan Delon. Oh. And she screwed that up for getting the schedule wrong or something. And then she was supposed to be, she was being considered, I guess, for last year at Marion Bow, which is another iconic you know, European film. 
you have to wonder, like, what would have happened if she gotten either of those roles? It's just sad because she's like her worst. She is her worst enemy over and right. over and over again. Right. And then it's then it's just like you're like, OK, like she's so good in some ways. Like she's she is the ultimate networker before the word networking even really exists. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, like I was I was saying this to someone the other day. It's like she kind of builds off of each situ- each situation she's in. Like she'll. She'll meet Andy Warhol and she'll say, oh, yeah, like I was just hanging out with the Rolling Stones. And then when she meets Bob Dylan, I was hanging out with Andy Warhol and the Rolling Stones. It's like that Chinese whisper thing where you have to say like the thing. Then the next person says that thing and the next Mm -hmm. thing it's like that. But like Nico was doing that with people. And so you have this really astute woman in some ways, but then basic things like a schedule, a calendar. She gets she just can't get that right. No, she's she's a total bohemian. I mean, in the truest sense, she absolutely is. And it's funny because my friend Allison, um, she had a early look at the book, and I, she said she kept texting me and being like, "I can't put the book down. I can't put the book down. It's so good." And then she, when she started to get like about halfway through, she's like, "Please tell me there's a happier ending. Please tell me it gets uh, less 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 sad." And then yeah. like as she got to the end, she's like, "Oh my god, it's getting even sadder." And then yeah. she got to the end and she's like, oh, it's a horrible ending. But the thing is, is like, you know, I think I think what we can really all learn from Nico is that the idea of art for art's sake, that's mm-hmm. really what she was all about. Like, that's eventually what she gets, you know, after the velvet. Am I, am I jumping ahead too far? No, this is like last year in Marinbeck. We're going to go back and forth. So don't worry okay. about that. <laughs> she, I'm say, but like, you know, when she as a solo artist, she makes art that is like nothing before it and like yes. nothing after right. it and she right. makes it because she has to make she is that is what you know she is forced by whatever calling to create and i think especially now when everything is you know what is your brand what are your followers yeah. you know mm-hmm. like are you photoshopped like she's the exact she would have been fuck you to all yeah. that <laughs> yeah she didn't get she didn't she didn't give two hoots about that and like yeah, yeah. you know i was i was saying in another interview that when she moved out of there's this interview i watched where she moves out of a shared house that she's in she's like just had a bedroom in a house and this is like in her 40s mm-hmm. and all of her things all of her belongings fit in one like black black trash bag yeah and right. like this is like you know i don't think any of us could move out with one trash no. bag. <laughs> you know? and no. and i was i was actually saying that to shirley manson from garbage and shirley's i said i think that's sad and shirley's like i think that's kind of beautiful that yeah she kind of boiled it down to like it was all about the art and the music and i think that there is something beautiful about that yeah I, I, just, I come from a bohemian background and 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 you know my parents uh and so all my parents and my family all had that one bag motif. It's, 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 it's did very. They, con- did did they make their common. own yogurt, Tosh? Uh, made their own drugs of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moral yogurt's canyon bit, in the house. There you like, go. <laughs> yogurt's a little bit healthy. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's... Nico doesn't strike me as a eccentric figure. She, I mean, in my type of lifestyle or the lifestyle that I know of, she's a very common type of personality to me. Well, didn't she say it gave her a certain freedom? You know, I mean, yeah. there is a lot of freedom to that. You can just you pick up and go at a moment's notice. Yeah. You know, you don't have any obligations to anybody. Even her son. 
Well, you know, and I've gotten a lot of questions about that. Like, isn't she just this horrible mom? And like, I do think, I don't think Nico set out to be a bad mom. I don't think no. she was like doing Mr. Burns fingers going, ha 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 ha. How can yeah. I plot to be a shitty mother? Um, <laughs> I do think, honestly, I think she did the best that she could be in the person she was in the situation yes. she found herself in. I feel she loves her son mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, that's the sense I get too. I mean, especially because if she didn't, she would have just left him with the grandparents. She did go see him as often as she could. She, you know, when he was young, she was bringing him to the factory. There's photos of him at the factory and stuff. Um, you know, you don't do that if you don't give a shit. Uh, she's she's not a good mom. Struggle for her. yeah. She doesn't have the mom No, she doesn't have the mother skills, but her in her heart, she loved her son very much. I feel. Yeah, I would yeah. I would say that that's totally true, you know, and yeah. and and I I love talking to some of the factory insiders that are still around and had mm. known Ari as a child. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. Their memories of that time period, and because he, he he was it must, it must have been so weird and exceptional for them to have a kid around yeah. all these eccentrics in the factory too what did, what did they say about him i mean the, the people you spoke to they all the said that he was like the most beautiful child uh-huh. super well behaved that he dressed really cool which uh-huh. i you know I don't, I, I don't know how much he had to do with that i think that was probably right. nico was doing right. um but that they would all babysit and like watch him mm-hmm. and just that when he left at eventually to go live with um the grandparents that he was devastated and that the all the friends were really sad too mm. because he was kind of part of their whole factory scene yes he was, he's like, like, he was, fam- <laughs> he, he, he he was, was a family factory member. baby yeah he was he was like the mascot you know so it, they, they kind of lost their child their child a little bit too when he left so uh they were sad to see him go for sure I'm, I'm kind of surprised Warhol didn't do like a, a, a film portrait of him. Like he did a screenshot. Oh, he did. No, he did do some um, screen screen things with, with Ari. Mm-hmm. Oh, there, wow. are, there are some with Ari. Yeah. Did, did, um, but did, did, did Ari, with, when you're in a conversation with Ari, did he talk about Warhol at all to, with you? No, he did not talk about, it was, it was more just like, um, are you doing a biography about my mother? Like, tell uh-huh. me what's going to be, what's uh-huh. going to be different about it? That kind of thing. It was very factual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause, Cause I met Warhol as a child as well. And the thing is, I have no memory of him whatsoever. I remember the day, I remember all the people around him specifically. I can remember all that, but I cannot remember him at all. It's weird because when I was in college, so I am, how old am I? 49. I went to university in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So even in the 90s, I remember probably my junior year. So like 1993, I, and I'm, this has a point. I remember going over to a friend's house, you know, the, all your friends are like living in like a shared apartment or whatever. Right. Yes. And one of the roommates, her mom was like a New York debutante and she mm. had like original Andy Warhols on the wall. Uh-huh. And this was like in 93. And we thought, Oh, that's cool. But it wasn't like, like mm. that would never happen now. No. <laughs> she just given her kid like, Oh, here's some of my old art you can have on your wall. Original right. Andy Warhols, you know yeah. what I mean? Like we're yeah, like, Oh, those that's things cool. are worth millions of yeah, dollars. Exactly. <laughs> so it's weird. I mean, that goes back to that whole thing about like why I wanted to kind of prove the points because you see that whole mythology of Andy Warhol change mm-hmm. and warp. I mean, in our lifetime, it's in thirty years it's changed dramatically. Right. Yeah. yeah. For better or worse, most people 
are first aware of Nico because of the Velvet Underground, and that's mm-hmm. like the strongest identity I think that she has in the main absolutely the, yeah. her main mythology. Despite the fact that she only sang three songs, and you know she wasn't really with the band for very long. Really, the bulk of her artistic output was had nothing to do with the Velvet Underground, and mm-hmm. you know. I mean, why do you think she was never able to get past that despite all the work she did afterwards? That's a really good question. And no one's actually asked me that before in that way. I think because the Velvet Underground had John Cale and Lou Reed who went on Mm -hmm. individually to be so worshipped, especially Lou Reed in Mm -hmm. his solo career in an almost David Bowie-esque Messiah sort of way. Mm -hmm. And again, you have that whole factory scene. You have that whole mm-hmm. that whole time period, which is kind of like this in um, like amber, like this beautiful kind of fossilized. Ooh, like I mean, I even find yeah. I find myself a lot less like this. Mm-hmm. But I would say up until I wrote the book on Nico and I had to immerse myself so much in it, it just yeah. seems like this really cool, otherworldly kind of time and moment. So of course, yes. people want to ask about it, know about it, hear about it. And it just it just seems like something that was so short lived and people are interested in it. So I think that that's one reason, you know, what was it like the other day? One of my 13 year old, um, my my friend's 13 year old daughter is like, what was Kurt Cobain like? Like, what was it like to work with him when you're mm-hmm. winning? It's going on. You're not like, ooh, it's Kurt Cobain. It's right. like, here's another short, smelly musician I have to show for around for the day. You're not, you're not, that, you're not a big deal. But I think. I think that Nico just could never get beyond that because for mm-hmm. better or for worse, you have those different factors. You have the Messiah-like rise of Lou Reed. You have mm-hmm. that um, the fetishism of Warhol and the factory. Yeah. Uh, and you have the fact that I think for better or for worse, like people had really kind of her value was what had been um, pegged as her appearance, mm-hmm. not as her as an artist. So when she kind of decided that she wanted to make that not the main focus, that I think threw people and it it just was easier to default to the other things that, you know, that she was originally cast forward for, which was the Velvet Underground, Warhol and Factory. Right. So, I mean, her beauty was really a double edged sword for her. Mm. And I think that's a big sort of overarching theme of the book is how she really struggled with that and fought against it. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that really especially because, you know, I wrote it, I finished the book before COVID, but I would say over COVID and really was hard for me thinking and reflecting on the book because, you know, getting older and myself, like I'm older now than Nico was when she died. Mm -hmm. And you read the book and people are like, oh, she's so old and pasty and like lumpy and all the things are used to describe her. Mm -hmm. And it's, and I look at pictures of her. I'm like, I think she was stunning to the very end of her life. I don't think. Oh, that's for sure. You know, amazing looking person. I mean, yeah, yeah, she's, she was beautiful from birth and she died beautifully. I mean, not died beautifully, but she looked, you know, she, she, she was always so striking and otherworldly looking. She has the, Mm -hmm. she has the it quality, you know, there's, there's a video of her, um, that it's it's black and white and it's taken it must be from like probably the early 80s and it's her doing it it's her interviewing somebody and talking in french and it's probably like four minutes long it's on Mm -hmm. youtube and it's just it's just her like she's not doing anything but she's you know probably like 43 or 44 and she just looks so cool you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like Mm -hmm. naturally cool naturally beautiful and again you go back to today with like the filters and the photoshopping and the this and the that and you're like 
she didn't have any of that. She just had that natural, like you're talking about, Tosh, that natural thing that you just cannot take your eyes away from her. Yeah, she's, sure. she, she, she's, she's an extra human being. I mean, mm. she's extra, extraordinary. She's amazing. And I remember Danny Fields told me a story. Danny Fields, again, being the one that um, he signed Nico to the Marble Index. He was the person that signed the Ramones, managed the Ramones, signed Iggy Pop. Mm -hmm. Danny Fields has all these great stories. We had one where they were at some, he was at some party with Nico and they were in some, I just love, I love his stories. They were in a, a buffet line. Which I just immediately I think of those like silver like you know those silver trays for like keeping food warm in a buffet yes. line. Yeah. I just thought of like Danny Fields and Nico in like a buffet line. Like, are there any egg, are there any egg rolls or sausages in there? Like, I love that. But um, also in the line was um, Judy Collins, who at that time period was like the it the it girl of mm-hmm. like folk music. And Danny mm-hmm. said that like Judy just looked at Nico and said, "Wow." you are someone or something of that nature. I may have gotten the word slightly wrong, but it was like, she just like looked Nico up and I was like, wow, you're someone. Yeah. And it wasn't just the looks. It was like the aura of Nico. But what I, what I was going to say, I think that there's definitely, this goes back to the very beginning of the conversation. There's definitely that, that ageist thing and how women are judged and all those things. I, you know, like you, when you watch interviews of Nico from later in her life and people are like, what was it like being of Andy Warhol? Mm-hmm. You just want to go, I, you just, I mean, like I watch them and I roll my eyes. I'm just like, yeah. oh girl, I'm so sorry. Like you put out all these records on your own. You've toured the world. You've done all this cool shit on your own. And mm-hmm. how annoying that's the first thing someone wants to ask you is about something that was, was such a short period of your life decades ago. Like you just, mm-hmm. you're irritated for her, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now it's interesting that uh, you also mentioned a couple times in the book that her biggest regret was that she wasn't a man, mm-hmm. which is of course another. Uh, again, we're continuing with this idea that you know she, there was so much misogyny behind what was uh, the critics were saying about her and why you know she possibly wasn't getting the kind of respect. And I loved how you mentioned the double standard about um, male and female drug users because I had never really thought about that, but it's true. It's like rock and roll guys it's like yeah that's part of the you know package that's what we do you know that's what artists do but you know everybody calls her like oh you know dirty junkie kind of thing and it's like well she was doing the same thing the guys were doing exactly yeah anita palmberg gets the same rap as well you know keith richards uh and brian jones uh muse that's right it's like it's cool that keith did it you know yeah but nita palmberg or marian Marian faithful gets that sort of same rap too that time yeah i mean like literally like the like lou reed and john kale were doing the exact same things nico was and you cannot tell me like i did this interview oh I'm, i'm like still traumatized by this i um got asked to do an interview for good morning Australia and, uh, <laughs> and me being a total like lamer, like they said it's 1240 AM on Sunday morning. So to me, 1240 AM Sunday morning, I don't know why I thought this. I thought no, just follow me here. 1240 Sunday morning means Sunday. Like, you know, the day you go to church, of course mm-hmm. I would like, you know, Sunday I would like go to, you know, do my whole thing, go grocery shopping with my husband, eat chicken for dinner. We always have chicken, roast chicken on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe watch a movie. I would then like stay up until one o'clock AM my time here in the UK and do mm-hmm. the call to Australia. Right. Well, yeah. 1240 Sunday morning is really what in Australia, 
is really Saturday. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, right, a, right, 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 right. Well, so, so yeah, so, so basically, basically, like, I, like, I, they woke me up calling me and tell me I had eight minutes to be on camera. For oh, no. so, like, to be, I on run, camera. be on oh, camera. To be on camera. I run downstairs <laughs> in my pajamas, braless, no makeup, uh, to do this. So, like, I get on, I get on Good Morning Australia and, like, they have, like, you know, on TV, they have the big backdrop. So, like, what the next topic is going to be, it's like, Rock's biggest groupie. That was like the backdrop, and oh, I fucking woke me up in the middle of the night for this. Oh, they were, that's what they were calling Nico, Rock's uh-huh. biggest groupie. Mm-hmm. And then, like the oh, first questions boy. are like, you know, that's what was gross. it like? Why did she sleep with Jim Morrison? What did Jim Morrison oh, see in her? What geez. did Lee Ree see in her? And where I'm going with all this is, you can, I mean, Jim Morrison was like the biggest shagger on earth at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he's all known. those guys were. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, Kim, I don't know which way you swing, girl, but you know, if I was Nico, I was that hot, I would go for Jim Morrison. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I could get a piece of that action, go yeah, yeah. get it. this. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, you're young and beautiful. It's yeah. party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I'm 49. If I was single, yeah, let's go get it now. You know what I mean? Like, no problem. So, so this, they, they would never in a million years. That was like Jim Morrison that I was doing a book on. They would never be like Rock's biggest groupie with Jim Morrison. Like, right. no way. Right. Like, I was just, I was appalled. I was so pissed off. And like, yeah. I, it's, so that is just, again, the double standard that you have going. And you're also dealing with a media that has, don't know who Nico is or the Velvets or anything. They don't know anything about that culture whatsoever. No. Yeah. Nothing. Zero. Zip. I mean, I'm happy. I, I And in some ways, like uh, the Daily Mail, which is kind of like the National Enquirer here in the UK, mm-hmm. I was like, I got, I got a, a review in the, in the daily mail and, mm. you know, I had to pretend to be like, Oh my God, I cannot believe they, I was in the daily mail. I'm so disgusted. <laughs> but I was, I was actually quite stoked because I'm like, I'm kind of like, you know what, if and, and all the comments, there's like the comments are even more hilarious than the article itself. But you know, there was probably like 600 comments underneath it. And like, I think oh. about like 10 people said, Oh, I'm going to go buy this book. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm like ching, but more so, right, than, right. yeah, more so than that. I was like, you know what? If ten people learn about Nico and figure out what an interesting person exactly. she was, then it's yeah. I call her slag her off as much as you want because that's ten more people that are going to be educated. Yeah, and maybe I'll change their minds. You know, Nico to me always has a strong presence. With whatever she she did, I mean, like you know, I mean, like as a model, she has a strong presence. The whole Ladosha Vita time period, she has a great, you know, presence. Nico and Bell Underground Warhol time, incredible presence. And then her solo years, uh, um, though she never really left that world because of the John Cale connection, you know, because he produced or arranged her music afterwards. Um, to me, it's like she has like separate chapters in her life, you know, they're, they're, and each chapter is a very strong, distinctive life. Like she had a whole life before Warhol and Factory and the Velvets that, you know, that you could just focus on that if you wanted to. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, the only other person that I know who has lived through so many interesting times is Richard Novak, who's the guy that started Santa Cruz Skateboards, who, again, was like born during the Depression, hung out with Beats, did the whole kind of endless summer surfing thing. It's just so rare that you meet people or learn about people that have it's it's almost like I always say about Rich and Nico has the same kind of vibe. And this is going to sound derogatory, but I don't mean it that way. It's almost like a Forrest Gump kind of vibe. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like how come <laughs> how can one person be with all these pivotal moments 
and meet all these pivotal people. But I think it does go, yeah, but I think it does go back to that kind of like, if you're a certain kind of person, you just are attract, you're attracted to certain things and those things are also attracted to you. Yes. You know, so you you just happen to, you just will find yourself in those situations. You know, like her coming to Paris after the war, you know, like I said, it was such a small creative community. And same with New York in the 50s and 60s. That was, you know, very prominent, but very small community. If you're an artist and you had like avant-garde leanings, of course you'll end up at the Warhol factory and, you know, and and be exposed to all all those artists. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting now, like in the time of the internet, we don't have, we now have everything, yet we don't have nothing. We don't have anything really. But at that time, you actually had to go somewhere which wasn't that difficult to do if you're living in that city in sorts. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, just the connection thing. Um, I've gotten to be friends with a guy named Don Letts, who was in Big Audio Dynamite. Oh, yes, I know uh-huh. him. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Love him. You guys should have him on the podcast. He did a book that's absolutely autobiographical. Yeah, we're thinking about it. Yeah, we saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's great. I love him. But he, he knew Basquiat and... I just find it so going back to like Nico being at these kind of like moments and knowing these people, it's just so cool and weird to me how that kind of like lineage goes like Don never met Nico that I know of. In fact, I think he's didn't meet her, but you have that Warhol coolness factor stretching, you know, into the eighties and you don't think of Nico going into the eighties or being associated with her. She's so Uh heavily that 1960s Warhol thing. Um, But you know, you have, uh, you have the Basquiat, you have Peter Hook from New Order. Mm-hmm. I talked to Johnny Marr. I interviewed Johnny Marr from the Smiths a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and he he told me he remembered seeing Nico a lot around Manchester. So it's right. just you know she just the, the, connecting like the Smiths and Nico. I'm like, oh, is there like it's like peanut butter and chocolate coming together? Like, <laughs> but do you know? Uh-huh. I don't know what Johnny said to me, and he said the, the thing he remembered about Nico, and this is so like, oh. He said she always had a look of disappointment on her face. Oh, wow. Isn't that heavy? I was just like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I just remind myself, I actually saw Nico in concert. Oh, I was going to ask you if you'd seen her. Did yeah, you? I did. I, did have, you, have you seen her before? No, no, I've never seen her. No, never seen her. Yeah, I think it was at the Whiskey of Go-Go. And oh. she was not. When was this? The 70s? Oh, I think late 70s. Uh-huh. And... It, it was just her and harmonium singing, and she was very drunk. Yeah, and and her guest, her special guest star was Tim Harden, uh-huh. who, who's totally like the male version of Nico in a way, like you know, brilliant songwriter, but also not not in a very healthy state of mind. Mm-hmm. And somebody in the audience yelled out, "Jackson Brown!" Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, and that and that she she went on a, a, a rant rage uh, wow, on yeah. the stage, and I tell you, if I can't remember the music, I just remember that incident when somebody yelled out Jackson Brown, and it, just, right. it was it was kind of a weird show because I'm used, I'm so used to going to so many different types of music shows of all sorts of all sorts of people, but the Nico show was a very unique experience because she was messed up, and you're like rooting for her, you're just like. Please God that everything will go right. <laughs> you really, as an audience member, you're really rooting for this person, and um, it was a very disturbed. It was a very disturbing show. It almost seems like there were people who went just to piss her off. I mean, it's 
if they were going to a Nico show, they must have known a little bit about her and known. Uh, it's like they were almost purposely trying to push her buttons in a way to get that reaction that she was known for doing. Yeah. It's really annoying. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've heard that people were either really rever- like reverent at the shows, like right. you're entering the church of Nico mm-hmm. or, and I've heard bootlegs of this, like people were just like screaming, you know, profanities and, crap and rude to her at the show so i think your experience tosh definitely falls into one of the categories that the nico shows would be like yeah one thing that um i think is interesting though that i heard over and over again for people that toured with her is that no matter how drunk stoned on smack she was she always took to the stage there was never a time when she was like i'm too fucked up to go on she always would go on stage regardless i'm not saying how good the quality of the show was right. but she always would go through with a performance that she was scheduled to do right right i was really shocked when you said that between 1982 and 1988 she played more than 1200 shows oh my god yeah. Can you i was just like wow that's uh, i mean that's almost like 200 shows a year she's a I mean, trooper. she was really hustling <laughs> yeah she, she needed the money yeah. Right, but or, I mean, in general, she had a work ethic. Yeah, you know I mean? she did. She did have a work ethic. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, do you know whatever what, the motivation yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think I could do that. To be fair, no, that's that's a tough lifestyle being on the road. You know, this very interesting. You know, when you look at her music history, just talking about music, she did everything right. I mean, for instance, uh, what what came first? The, the, when she did the record with Serge Gainsbourg, uh, Striptease, which is mm. a soundtrack to a movie that she was in. That was in the early '60s, I guess, or which that that movie I think is like criminally underrated, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, see I it. can't even find it. I tried to find it, and that's and I can't find it anywhere to even rent or anything. But I love the song. I love I love her recording of that song. And the previous person who recorded that song was uh, 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 is another icon, uh, Juliet Greco, um, did the version of Striptease, the song. And then she worked with. Uh, then she worked with. Jimmy Page and what's it? What's the song she did for? Not Immediate Records. Yeah, well, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Immediate Records. Yeah, it was Immediate Records, and that was before he was in, before he was in Led Zeppelin. Right. Which is incredible. Is Andrew Lug Oldham, and the song's called "I'm Not Saying." Great song, uh, great record. Yeah, yeah, and it's hilarious because Andrew thinks that song is crap. He thinks that he thinks it is garbage. I think it's a huge jam. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's a great Uh, record. I love it. Yeah, I think it's really good too. And then from that, she goes into the Beverly Underground. You know, then we know about that. And then, you know, then he then she went on to her solo records, which are which are really amazing. You know, I, they're, 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 she's really a great. I don't say she's a great song. I don't. Is she a great songwriter? She's a great presence and voice, and her music is so magnificent and grand to me. I think your book is going to bring about a, a whole Nico revival. Yeah, fingers crossed. I I hope so. I mean, like one thing I was on um somebody's radio show and she's like, we should start a campaign to get her into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because the Velvet Underground was inducted, but not Nico. Right, right. Uh-huh. That's a shame. Yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a it's a one big it's thing. such a bullshit thing. I, I just can't even be bothered with that. Yeah. I know. Yeah, and I kind of was just like, I I mean, of course, I would love for her to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but right. it's just it's almost like. 
not that it's better her not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it's yes. just almost like a perfect ending to the whole story. Her not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Does that right. make sense? Because she's such a well. It's just that's her whole vibe is fuck you. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. I am what I am, and if you don't like it, I don't give a shit. If you, you don't know? get it, too bad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's your exactly. loss. Yeah. 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 Those who get it, yeah. They're the lucky ones. <laughs> As they would say in um, In Living Color from the 90s, Z-Snap Formation, Kim Lee. If you know what I'm talking about, if you don't, it's fine to you. Uh, sorry. I basically have not, I've not left 1997, basically. <laughs> never leave, never leave. Never leave. Yeah, our yes, young never. adulthood is always strong with us forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm always 24 years old. <laughs> so the so the book is called i love reading the title out i I, are... I i did i was gonna say i did not guess that you liked it by uh the way you said it the first time but i just interrupted you so sorry no, no start over again I, I want to do it again and again i love yes the book. It's called, the book is called you are beautiful and you are alone the biography of nico by Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. Excellent biography and a fascinating figure. And, you know, I, I can we can go on and on just talking about this. Again, not only Nico, but that whole culture around Nico is totally uh, fascinating. And the book captures that whole, ca- that whole culture very well. It's an excellent book, in my opinion. Well, yes, thank- yes. I feel thank- like you really fleshed out the mythology of Nico and you yeah. portrayed her as the complicated, very human person that she was. Yeah, fascinating. Thank-, thank you so, so much. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast and taking the time to read the book. I really appreciate it. Oh, total pleasure. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. This is like my best vacation ever. <laughs> what 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 are we going to do next, Kimley? What's the next subject? Okay, matter? the next book we're going to be doing is called Common Tones: Selected Interviews with Artists and Musicians, nineteen ninety five to twenty twenty, by Alan Licht, who is a New York musician and writer. Excellent. We're looking yes, forward to that. Absolutely. We've got playlists for all of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news and links to everything fun. And our central location is our website, bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you so much, Jen. That was a blast. Thank you so much. And thank you for the therapy session. I really appreciate it. It was mutual. We're we're all better for it. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody.